Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DK207, Contemporary Education, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 319, August 3, 1994. This evening, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, Mark Rushdooney, and myself are happy to have with us one of our staff members, Sam Blumenfeld. Sam Blumenfeld's work here in Australia, New Zealand, Britain, and elsewhere has been outstanding in the area of phonics and homeschooling. He is very much alive to the issues in contemporary education, what is happening, what uh, is planned, and what we need to do. So it's a pleasure to have you with us this evening, Sam, and we'd like you to start off and just give us an overview of things or whatever you want yeah. to tell us. Well, Russia, as, as always, it's a pleasure to be here with you, with the Chalcedon uh, bunch. And uh, let me just review what's happened over the year, uh, the, last, the past year. There's been uh, continued growth in the homeschool movement in terms of numbers, uh, conferences, publications, book fairs, attendance at conferences, uh, there are many more local support groups. For example, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 6,000 people showed up at a homeschool conference in Harrisburg. That's amazing. It is, it is. So, and there are many more books being uh, published for homeschoolers. The best, and the, but the best groups are the Christian ones. That's where you get real spirit. Uh, and, and something is happening there that is not happening in the more secular ones. On the public education front, what we're seeing really is an acceleration of the federalization of public education. What we've had in the past year is an avalanche of legislation coming out of the Congress that is really federalizing a public education. Uh, local control is being stripped away uh, with laws like Goals 2000, uh, HR 6, etc. Uh, you have uh, the government uh, really taking over, the federal government taking over public education. Uh, now, one very significant thing happened while this legislation was being enacted, and I'm sure you've heard of it, the H.R. 6 yes. uh, law that was a reauthorization of the um, secondary, uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, uh, and there were a uh, one of your uh, California representatives uh, added an amendment, uh, Mr. Miller, uh, and uh, he added this amendment, which would have affected that is George Miller, Democrat of California, very left-wing, very uh, uh, liberal individual. He added an amendment which on um, certification which would have affected the homeschoolers. 
And one of our homeschool people became aware of that, got in touch with HS, uh, Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and they put out an alert, a fax alert, a phone alert. The phone trees lit up like Christmas trees. Washington, or the Congress, was inundated by one million phone calls and faxes. Some of these machines were put out of commission by the response. And for the first time in our history, the homeschools were able to force Congress to make a complete about-face they rejected the uh, amendment, the uh, Miller Amendment, uh, unanimously, except for Miller himself. He was the only <laughs> one. <laughs> so it was quite an achievement, quite an achievement. And suddenly, suddenly the homeschoolers realized that they have this enormous power that they've uh, been creating, and, and, you know, but through these networks. And... Uh, who knows how it can be used in the future? Of course, this was an extraordinary circumstance, but they managed to stop that. They haven't stopped anything else. They didn't stop Goals 2000. They didn't stop all the rest of the legislation. But the NEA, the National Education Association, was absolutely outraged and startled by this turn of events, and they realize now that uh, certification, as they want it, is a dead letter in this country because of the homeschoolers. What does the certification mean? Well, it means that the teachers have to, that a homeschool parent would have to be certified by the state. And in order to be certified by the state, you've got to go to a teacher's college, or you've got to take certain courses, or you've got to take a test or something else. In other words, it's the state's attempt to control home education. In effect, it would put home education out of business, wouldn't it? Well, that's what it was intended to do. You see, of course, they denied that that, that that was going to happen. I was uh, testifying once. I've mentioned this on another occasion in Virginia. Yes. And a professor of physics testified that he was so disgusted with what his two daughters were learning in the state schools that he proceeded to teach them himself and found that he was not considered a fit teacher by the state, and to teach physics to his own daughters, he would have to have approval by a state official who knew less about physics than he did. Yeah, yeah that's the kind of thing that that would have uh, uh, brought about, and of course it would have affected also the private schools, the uh, private Christian schools that don't use certified teachers, they don't mm -hmm. use state certified teachers. Uh, so this was a, a really quite a quite an event, quite a, and it'll go down in, in the history of the homeschool movement of ha as having been the moment of truth. I get the feeling that the homeschool movement has reached the point of, what do you call it, the uh, mass... Critical mass. Critical mass, exactly. In other words, uh, and that they're not going to be able to get rid of homeschooling without causing a tremendous, an, a tremendous uproar in this country because you're dealing with parents who feel very strongly about this sort of thing. These are parents who are not going to lie down and let the state walk all over them. So now they have to contend with this 
incredible new force and how it's going to manifest itself in the future is, is to be seen. Of course, what's also going on in public education is the total reform based on outcome-based education. That is the uh, system that you might say was created by Benjamin Bloom, the professor at Chicago University, the behavioral uh, scientist, which is really the uh, curriculum for the New World Order. It, it destroys every last vestige of traditional education. But it sounds so wonderful, outcome-based outcome education. Well, yes, I mean, because all education has an out, you know, every sure. form of education has an outcome. The outcome of a Christian education is to produce a Christian, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a well-educated, a learned mm -hmm. uh, Christian. A Catholic education is to produce good Catholics, etc., not that they always succeed, but they always have that outcome. Now, the outcome uh, for outcome-based education is to produce little humanists, you see, because uh, what they want to do is take children who come from Christian homes and totally reorganize their minds, their feelings, their beliefs, and turn them into little humanists, because... Uh, you see, the, the battle of Christi against Christianity uh, has to be waged against Christians. Well, adult Christians are not about to be influenced by these people, but they feel that since 85% of the Christians in America put their children in public schools, that by paganizing these children, creating little humanists, they can, in two generations, destroy the... the bulk of the Christian uh, population, and uh, they'll deal with the remnant as they did with the Davidians in Waco. You know, there'll just not be too many left, apparently. I, I would assume that that seems to be their, their, uh, their tactic. Now, of course, uh, this has created parental opposition in, in all over the country, wherever it's being uh, tried in Pennsylvania. Do the parents understand this? Uh, is the goal? Well, yes, the uh, awakened parents, Christian parents, understand that this is the new world order. This is the new age. This is uh, uh, this is the the Gaia. Isn't this what the Soviet tried to do? Well, you know what's interesting about the Soviets is that they wanted highly skilled engineers, technicians, and so they got rid of progressive education. In 1931, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union threw out the Dewey system. You see, yes. uh, uh, Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, yes. put in the Dewey system, ah. John Dewey and the Progressive. His books were very widely circulated, and they used the whole word method. Mm -hmm. Now, the kids were becoming illiterate. They were having functional illiteracy in Russia, and the Communist Party became very alarmed because... Stalin wanted to build the greatest war machine in the world. You could do it with a bunch of functional illiterates. And so they threw out the entire Dewey system and they reinstated uh, phonetic teaching of, of reading and separate subject matter, you see. And uh, the result is that they have a highly literate population. They were restricted in what they could read, but they could read. In other words, they could read Dostoevsky and they could read Tolstoy 
and they could read whatever the Communist Party permitted them to read. The Communist Party here never seemed to have learned that. Well, they've learned it. You see, what's good for the Soviet Union is not necessarily good for the United States, you see, because there they already had communism. Yeah. So they needed a highly uh, literate population. Mm -hmm. This country was still capitalist. They have to dumb us down, continue to dumb us down, until we can be con totally controlled. So here were our educators who were very much disappointed in what had happened in Russia. They knew all about it. They wrote about it because I've, uh, I've gone through the, uh, the documents and I've, I've seen what they've said. They were terribly disappointed. They knew that the system had failed in Russia. But they didn't care about it here. But they put it, they then put it in the United States, you see. Well, then they deliberately did it in order to keep the American kids from learning to read. Exactly. You see, that's one of the proofs that we have that this was all deliberate because they knew it was a failure. The, the experiment had failed in Russia. Mm. And then they deliberately put it in this country because the, the, the Dick and Jane books were brought in around 1930. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... The Russian system is quite different, uh, and in fact, the uh, teaching of reading throughout the Eastern Bloc was based on phonetics. And I think that one of the reasons why the the Soviets were were able to throw off outward communism, at least, was because they could read. You know, these people could read; they knew what was going on in the world. Uh, your average American youngster hasn't the faintest idea what's going on anywhere. Yeah. in this world or any other world. I mean, you know, you ask them very simple questions like when was the civil when did the civil war take place? And they look at you and they well, did it happen after World War One or before World War One? You know, they have no sense of chronology, nothing. But the Soviets went back to a strict subject matter chronological form of teaching. Uh, because they believed that Marxism was objective truth, because mm -hmm. yes. it wasn't. Now, also part of uh, outcome-based education is whole language. Whole language, which is the the worst form of teaching reading. It's it, I call it deconstruction. In other words, in whole language, the youngster constructs meaning. You know what that means? He no. constructs meaning. It means he makes up whatever he wants to. Good God. In other words, the text is the a word kind of means anything he wants it to mean. Yes. But, but what limit is there? You know, if you tell a child to, you know, read it in any way you want to interpret it as you want. As a matter of fact, let me quote to you uh, a definition of the uh, of whole language to give you an idea that these people are serious. I mean, I'm not talking about uh, idiots. I'm talking, well, they are idiots, but I mean, uh, they're educators. They're educated idiots. Right. Here is, the, here is their definition of, of whole language taken from a book entitled Whole Language, What's the Difference? Published in 1991, written by three whole language professors. They say, quote, From a whole language perspective, reading is a process of generating hypotheses in a meaning-making transaction in a socio-historical context. I'm sure you've got that. Well, I'm not finished. Empty, empty sounds. 
Yes, and then they go on. As a transactional process, reading is not a matter of getting the meaning from text, as if that meaning were in the text waiting to be decoded by the reader. Rather, reading is a matter of readers using the cues print provide and the knowledge they bring with them to construct a unique interpretation. Moreover, that interpretation is situated. Readers' creations, not retrievals, of meaning with the text vary, depending on their purposes for reading and the expectations of others in the reading event. This view of reading implies that there is no single correct meaning for a given text, only plausible meanings. Well, yes. <laughs> but then why do they need a text? Good question. <laughs> Very good question. Their attitude is, Otto, that the kind of writing you and I do imposes a meaning on the uh, reader. Darn right. Yeah, darn right. We're fascistic. We are dictatorial. We don't allow them free play for their own interpretation. So you, they have this kind of jargon which has very little meaning. This fits in with the argument now that if you express your belief, you're trying to push it down somebody's throat. Yes. Well, you know, and they go on to say, they say, meaning is created through a transaction with whole meaningful text. It is a transaction, not an extraction of the meaning from the print, in the sense that the reader-created meanings are a fusion of what the reader brings and what the text offers. In a transactional model, words do not have static meanings, rather they have meaning potentials and the capacity to communicate multiple meanings. What a wonderful way of repeating who, who was it, Tweedledee or Tweedledum, <laughs> yes. who said that words mean what I want them to mean? Yes. It's a question of who is to be master, right. you or the word. Yes. So, so there you get, the, this is coming from professors of education. These are the people who now control the system, and this is what children are being given Gosh. In, in the schools. <laughs> and you can imagine what kind of readers these kids are going to become, if... Well, okay. they're not going to be readers at all. No, and they don't teach phonics because phonics is verboten. Because in whole language you must teach everything holistically, and phonics breaks up things into tiny little letters. Letters, right? <laughs> Did the new education bill ban phonics? Well, it didn't ban it. But it was very much against it. It, it sort of, uh, there was a statement in it, in the policy statement, uh, saying that uh, drill and rote memorization were bad, you see. And of course, uh, the only way you can learn to read phonetically is by rote and memorization and drill. In my university days, it was held that phonics slowed down readers. It yeah. tied them to the text. Oh, yes, yes. But now let me give you now let me give you another quote to give you to give you an idea what is behind this. I mean, here are these teachers with this absurd this absurd philosophy of reading. Now here's another professor. This is a Harvard professor, Anthony Ottinger, uh, who also happens to be a uh, <laughs> member of the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> just so happens. 
he's, um, uh, he, uh, he spoke to a, uh, he uh, deals with communication. And he spoke to uh, the executives of Northern Telecom, a large, you know, communications, global communications organization in, in 1981. Big corporation. Here are all these executives. Here's the professor talking to them. This is what he's saying. Quote, the present traditional concept of literacy has to do with the ability to read and write. But the real question that confronts us today is, how do we help citizens function well in their society? How can they acquire the skills necessary to solve their problems? Do we really want to teach people to do a lot of sums or write in a fine round hand when they have a $5 handheld calculator or a word processor to work with? Or do we really have to have everybody literate, writing and reading in the traditional sense, when we have the means through our technology to achieve a new flowering of oral communication? It is the traditional idea that says certain forms of communication, such as comic books, are bad, but in the modern context of functionalism, they may not be all that bad." Unquote. We don't need people who know how to read and read and write. Well, what he's that. saying is, do we really have to have everybody literate yeah. in the traditional sense? Yeah. Not everybody. He's saying some people have to. Yeah. Us, the elite, Harvard. He's one of the first to advocate this position, and it was an essay in Harper's in the fifties said that perhaps a third or more of all the people in the country are not the literate type and do not need to know how to read. Well, apparently that idea is now uh, the, it's the, now the gospel official in the, policy. Oh, yeah, of the elite, of the elite. In fact, I'll, I'll give you another quote along the same lines made in 1987 by a man by the name of Thomas Sticht, who is now, uh, he's a specialist in adult literacy, and he's now uh, assistant to Robert Reich, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, Secretary of Labor. Yeah. This is what Mr. Stick said in, in 1987, quote, many companies have moved operations to places with cheap, relatively poorly educated labor. What may be crucial, they say, is the dependability of a labor force and how well it can be managed and trained, not its general educational level. Although a small cadre of highly educated creative people is essential to innovation and growth, ending discrimination and changing values are probably more important than reading and moving low-income families into the middle class. An end to the upward mobility of the American people. Let's get some good coolies here. That's right. So what we're, what they are creating is a pyramidal society with an elite at the top, a university elite at the top, with, with brilliant people like Bill and Hillary at the very <laughs> pinnacle of intelligence. Yes. That, and, and, of course, George Stephanopoulos and mm -hmm. others of, of in that category. And directly below them, is the professional class, the CEOs, the managers, the scribes, your friends in industry. <laughs> yes. Well, Otto, 
the uh, this is a regression of about three thousand years. It is. It is. Well, you're getting to a pyramid. Yes. Where the, isn't that when the pyramids were built? Yes. And then below them is the hoi polloi, the masses, right. the people who this are being dumbed down. What Sprenger called a fellahin. That's right. And these people, according to these elitists, do not have to know how to read. Right. As long as they can read comic books, you see, on a comic book level, they can, quote, function mm -hmm. in our society. In other words, the purpose of outcome-based education is to produce people who can function and who are not educated and who are not educated exactly so that's what we've come to that's what public education is today that's what's being uh, uh, voted in every state legislature in the union including california do you suppose that the polysyllabic language that they're using has absolutely obscured the point the meaning to the extent that the politicians don't understand what they're going along with well, the educators understand it, but you know politicians don't do the work. It's their staff that does it. You know, some of these politicians certainly know what's going on. Uh, but I don't think they understand it to the extent that, say, a person like myself does, mm -hmm. who has done a good deal of reading and research on this. Most of them would not even believe that this is going on. That's right. You know, they would assume... It's, it sounds Orwellian. Yes, it, sounds it is. exaggerated. It is. For example, your friends at in Ashland? industry at Ashland who are... Well, no, they, they themselves are not particularly literate. Yeah. But nevertheless, they are backing the Kentucky Education Reform Act, which has, which has produced this situation in Kentucky where the scores are going down, where they're Very using whole language. Very embarrassing. Uh, and, and the uh, people in Kentucky are up in arms. I have a feeling that it won't last for much longer, that the people are simply going to just throw it out. They're going to throw the legislators out. Yes, there's article after article that industry is frustrated because they can't find people that can do simple tasks. Right. Eighth grade can't read. education, yes. can't read, can't do arithmetic, can't uh, fill out, uh, read or understand the contract and they're having in-house education to try yes. to bring them up to speed. Well, what they're going to find out in, in a couple of years is that this newfangled uh, education reform program is not producing the work as they want. But uh, there's another point, there's another aspect to this. You see, he talks about, Stick talks about a labor force that can be managed and trained, not its general educational level. In other words, the Filipinos work very nicely. The Taiwanese, uh, the people in Java, where you know, all where all of these things are being made now by uh, our American goods are being made. Don't forget, these are people who are right. citizens in an autocratic society. Right now, the point is, he's saying that why should we teach American kids all about the Constitution, and American history? Because the Filipinos don't know about it, the Taiwanese don't know about no, it. Look at the wonderful things they yeah. they don't have to know it. So he's just saying all we need is a labor force that's managed and trained, and that's what they're telling the big CEOs, like Professor Ottinger is telling the CEOs. Everybody doesn't have to learn to read. You know, the traditional view of literacy is old-fashioned. You know, it's passe. And a lot of these CEOs are apparently buying it. Now you explain to me why they are. Well, if you can, Otto. Well, 
The biggest rule of thumb right now for American corporations is don't make waves. Yes. Because the government's regulations have become so enormous, yes. so multitudinous, that any organized group that you get against you can cause you an awful lot of trouble. The NEA is a big organized group. And the press works hand in glove with the NEA, and so does the government. Yes. The Department of Education is involved with the NEA. And I'm just doing the best as a devil's advocate and saying that, therefore, the average public relations executive in a corporation feels that his job is to not make waves and to keep the company from making waves. Yes. And at the same time, to get along with any organized group that can make waves is his number one job. Mm -hmm. So therefore, Ashland and other companies will go out of their way to uh, go along with the equal employment provisions. They go when when these when the civil rights business first started, they hired a, a, an executive to do nothing but placate the civil rights people. Yes. And in this case, they're placating what they considered part of the establishment, the educational establishment. And the chief executive does not look beyond that mm -hmm. and does not look into that. His idea is that I've delegated people to take care of that. Let them do it. Well, you know, of course, it's just sheer ignorance and they're slitting their own throats in a way. Well, it's, it's a reflection, you might say, of specialization. The United States has turned into a country of specialized people, not a, not a country yeah. of educated people. Right. We have specialists, but we don't have ed an educated elite. Well, we have an elite, but it isn't educated. It's not educated. It's a, it's a, a power elite. It's a power elite. It's a specialist elite, but it is not an educated elite. Yes. As you say, these people are not very literate. No, these they're not. CEOs. And they get very upset uh -huh. when you tell them that. Yes. Well, it doesn't do much good to tell people who will not see nor hear what the reality of our situation is. Our Lord said, We're not to cast holy things before dogs, nor pearls before swine, lest they turn and rend you. Yes. And uh, our Lord told his disciples when he first sent them out, two by two, that if they will not hear you, don't take time to try to persuade them. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. We're not to waste our time trying to tell things to people who will not hear. We are to speak to those who will hear. Well, a lot of people don't realize that it's a supreme courtesy to tell people your honest opinion. If it doesn't suit their statements, they're apt to take it as hostility. Yes. Uh, attempts to start an argument or whatever. They don't take it as courtesy, but it is the ultimate courtesy. Yes. Well, I find that the, the people who listen to me are the homeschoolers or the parents, basically. I don't get any many teachers attending my lectures or my seminars. 
they're usually the homeschoolers, and those are the people I talk to, or other small groups. The, the powers that be don't want to know. Uh, the, the big CEOs don't want to know. Uh, Arnold Simkus, a good friend of mine in, in uh, Michigan, has done everything in his power to bring to the attention of prison wardens, CEOs, uh, local legislators, uh, selectmen, you name it, about the reading problem. And everywhere he goes, a big door is slammed in his face. Oh, it's I just amazing that he's done everything possible to reach these people. I remember one executive saying to me one day, who reads? And I said, people who give orders to people like you. Yeah. Well, now, you see, Douglas, uh, apparently these people are not that concerned about reading. They're saying, oh, they complain that these people can't read. Well, then why aren't they open to people like me, you see? Let me give you an idea also of how dumbed down the nation is becoming just by citing two very simple statistics. You know, the SAT score, the SATs are taken by the best kids, the ones who are going to college. So now we're talking about those at the top. We're not talking about the dropouts. We're not talking about kids who are, you know, who are falling through the cracks. The highest score that you can get in the SAT is between 750 and 800. Now, in 1972, the number of youngsters who scored between 750 and 800 was 2,817. In 1992, the number of students who scored at that level was down to 1,371. Out of how many? Well, uh, in, um, in uh, 1972, you had 1,088,223 students taking the test. And only 2,000 hit on the top scores? 2,817. Out of over a million? Yes. And in 1992, you had 1,034,131 taking the, fewer taking the test, and of course, the number was down to 1,371, so half as many. That's really dumbing down on, a, on an incredible scale. I mean, we're losing our brains. We're well, always losing our brains. When you made the point that the corporate executives are not concerned to the extent that uh, they say, don't forget that you cannot even be interviewed by the average 500 corporation, 500 fortune corporation, unless you have a degree. Mm -hmm. So they don't generally run into the it's results true. of yeah. this. Yeah, you're right. Well, the ones with degrees are often illiterate. They're not what they were. Oh, yeah. At one uh, time, a degree was an absolute guarantee of literacy. The That's not true anymore. The editor of a scientific journal not too many years ago told me that it was appalling to read the uh, research papers he received, that many were illiterate. He could not even figure out what their point was, let alone... Uh, find them to be a valid uh, research paper. So people with PhDs uh, do not have the uh, ability to 
write uh, intelligibly. Another, incidentally, another um, statistic from those SATs are concerning those at the very bottom. Uh, those youngsters who scored between 200 and 290. Now, they say that you can get 200 by just signing your name. Well, practically, I'm okay. sure. <laughs> In 1987, the number of youngsters who scored at that, at the, uh, that low level was 120, uh, 3,470. 123,470. And in 1993, it was up to 133,718. That's over 10%. Yes. In other words, the uh, the dumber the dumber getting dumber, and the right. smarter getting dumber. So you're having a dumbing down process throughout the entire system. Do you know that in ancient Rome, toward the end, and ending centuries, that is. <coughs> They ran out of clerks. Uh -huh. That's one of the reasons I had to split the administration of the empire. They didn't have enough people left that could write. write. This is what we're going to run into. Well, uh, we already have it, but they're saying, oh, well, we've got spell check and we've got computers. And for, in a sense, the computers are sort of uh, helping us get away with this, or helping the, the cover, it up. cover it up by saying, well, we've got all these machines now. We don't need these people. We don't need readers any longer. But what's going to happen is though you're going uh, to have a small group of highly literate people who are going to run the country, but then you're going to have all of these others who are going to envy, you know, like the, like the underclass in Los Angeles. All right, you're going to run into something here. You know, there's the old slogan, the one-eyed man is the king of the blind. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true. No. The one-eyed man is killed by the blind. Yes. H.G. Yes. Wells wrote a very telling story about that. I don't believe it, he was killed, but he had to flee for his life. Yes, yes. I didn't, I didn't read that, but that's yes. been my observation. But in any case, it's these facts that are that are forcing thousands of parents to take their kids out of the public schools and put them into uh, private schools and to homeschool them. So we expect that the homeschool movement is just going to grow exponentially as these as these reform bills are passed by the state legislatures, and they seem to be passing because of pressure. From from above, from the federal from government, from the NEA, from the, the NEA Department of Education, Carnegie Foundation. The you see, so you have these Foundation. Carnegie carpetbaggers going from state to state, uh, getting the elite in the state to impose this. This has been going on for quite some time, and uh, they're getting they've gotten away with it. For example, in in Kentucky, where there's this growing opposition. Uh, the state still uh, is enforcing uh, CARA, Kentucky Education Reform Act, and in fact they even have set up a, a kind of internal Gestapo that uh, of uh, operates. Where does it operate? Out of Louisville, you know. Out I mean, of these does it operate in, in the schools? Oh yeah, the they school are, districts, right? <clears throat> uh, they have. They, as a matter of fact, the. Um, they have a committee called the Pritchard Committee, which is a committee of the elite 
and they've received a grant from the Carnegie Foundation to, in order to hire monitors to go to each school district to make sure that this this reform is being carried out. And Ashland Petroleum Oil, oil or is Ashland Coal or whatever it is these days, oil, is one of them on the Pritchett Committee, one of the sponsors. So here you have a new sort of Gestapo uh, coming into uh, play uh, on America, uh, in the schools of America. So parents are finding this out. They're getting very upset, and they're, well, they're going to be there's going to be a tremendous exodus from the public schools. Well, now that you bring the matter up, we do know that uh, even somebody like myself who's far on the sidelines, that the courts were long ago convinced of the value of our public schools because they used to abuse parents, accuse them of yeah. abusing their children for not putting them in public schools. It's truancy is now a crime. It was a crime when I was a boy. Yes. But, uh, well, that's, that's the way things are. Uh, the, the goal, of course, is the New World Order. It's going to be a socialist, pagan New World Order. And I think we have confirmation of that, of the, of the whole trend toward the New World Order from Quigley, mm. from Malachi Martin, from Norman Dodd, mm -hmm. uh, and from the, uh, what we've discovered now about the Rhodes uh, Secret Society. Mm -hmm. And all of these, uh, and the use of the Rhodes Scholarship as the means of... That's the elite. Of, yes. Of, of, of finding, selecting those young people who will be the elite controllers of tomorrow. And they're already in the White House. Already in the White House. I think I should cite here again what I reported to you earlier. John Lofton's uh, comment that the theme song of uh, our leaders is give me that old time irreligion uh -huh. and that's what they're working for irreligion oh, absolutely absolutely well of course they have they don't have a homogenized country to do this in you have you have a Muslim group in the country which is on the verge of exceeding in population the Jewish group. Mm -hmm. And uh, thanks to the State Department and its policies. That's right. But they're not going to abandon their religion very easily. They haven't in the past and they're not likely to do it here. Well, you know, this whole business of, of religion, as they're going to use the schools to take care of the kids. Mm -hmm. They're not, they forget, they know they can't convert the adults. Yeah. They're dealing with the children, and now they're accelerating this whole paganization process in the schools themselves. So they think that that'll swamp. Right, right. The minorities. Right. Now, you know, there's been an awful lot of, of, uh, of speculation on who controlled, who is the controlling group behind this? Why is everything moving in this direction? Uh, people say it's the Council on Foreign Relations, it's the Illuminati, it's the uh, uh, the Masons. There are all sorts of theories. Mm -hmm. I think in the last couple of years we've been able to sort of zero in on who are the controllers, and I believe that basically this roads secret society. I've come to the conclusion that they control the foundation, particularly Carnegie Foundation, 
And there was an article in the uh, New York Times when when Rhodes died, March 26, 1902. Mm -hmm. The headline read, Mr. Rhodes' Ideal of Anglo-Saxon Greatness, Statement of His Aims Written for W.T. Stead in 1890. Mm -hmm. He believed a wealthy secret society should work to secure the world's peace and a British-American federation. And Stead quoted copiously from uh, uh, from uh, uh, Rhodes's own writings. Well, Rhodes was dealing with a world in which the Anglo-Saxons were dominant at that time yes. and possessed the dominant influence in terms of, the, of finance. That's true. Today, the financial world is broken free of the Anglo-Saxons and every other group. They're almost, you know, we have 22,000 currency speculators, professional mm -hmm. currency speculators, right. who operate electronically, and they exceed all national and ethical and religious boundaries. It's, we can no longer say, you know, I mean, like the anti-Semites accused the Jewish minority of controlling international finance. Well, it was never really true, and it's not true now. Yeah. Uh, Rhodes's, uh, what I'm saying is that Rhodes's concept was too narrow, was was conceived in a rather narrow and, and controlled period oh, yeah, of yeah. time, and that now I don't really see the financial world aiming at any sort of no, it, it may not. It, it, it probably will not come to pass. No, I don't but think it But the point is that they all have already accumulated so much power and so much money that, and they're headed toward this new world order, this paganized, socialized new world. It's no longer controlled by the original no, formulators of this. But the, the point is to see how it started and what were the ideas in their in their heads, right. especially well, in Rhodes's head. The kind of a mentality that put together these great fortunes in the first place, Carnegie, etc., is not present in the in the secretariat that manages the fund. No, of course the, not. The people who manage those funds, the Carnegie funds and so forth, and I've met some of them, yeah. and so have you, uh, including the secretariat right. of the uh, CFR, simply are not very bright people. And well, this is why they're taking us down into these stupidities. Yes. Well, let me just quote from this article just briefly to give you an idea. It said, Mr. Rhodes added, the only thing feasible to carry out this idea, now this idea of world government, is a secret society gradually absorbing the wealth of the world. Only somebody as stupid as Woodrow Wilson would believe this. To be devoted to such an object. Then he says, there is Baron Hirsch, with 20 millions very soon to cross the unknown border and struggling in the dark to know what to do with this money. And so one might go on ad infinitum. In other words, he convinced the rich, don't leave your money to your dissolute heirs. <laughs> Put it into this wonderful scheme that's going to save mankind, you see. And then he says, fancy the charm to young America just coming on and dissatisfied for they have filled up their own country and do not know what to tackle next. To share in a scheme to take the government of the whole world. 
Well, this is like the sorcerer's apprentice <laughs> after the masters die. Yes. Now we've got the UN and we've got Boutrous, Boutrous, whatever his name is, yeah. and the rest of those idiots, the ones in Brussels, who are putting up a great big paper labyrinthine plot to control all Europe, as if anybody could control Italians alone, let alone speak of Europe. Uh, but we're what you're dealing with here is that you're dealing with the idiocies and the mischief that they are really creating. Yes. No matter where they think they're going, they're actually doing all this damage. Of and course they are. That's the central point. Look at the damage that the communists did in Russia. Yes. I mean, 75 years of communism, what did they have to show for it? Uh, an impoverished nation. That's right. Total loss of morals and morality, uh, you know, and and millions and millions of of, of individual human beings wiped out. Right. Here's another interesting uh, uh, quote. But towards securing this millennium, this is from the New York Times, Mr. Rhodes believed the most important factor would be a secret society organized like Loyola's, supported by the accumulated wealth of those whose aspiration is a desire to do something, and who would be spared the hideous annoyance daily created by the thought to which of their incompetent relations they should leave their fortunes. These wealthy people, Mr. Rhodes thought, would thus be greatly relieved and be able to turn their ill-gotten or inherited gains to some advantage." What well, an incredible scheme, you well, see. You know, money alone will not hold people together. No, no, of course not. It wouldn't hold them together any more than it held anybody else yes. together. You have to have a higher value, you have to have a spiritual value to make life and effort worthwhile. You know that Rhodes also was, was involved, uh, he helped create the Boer War. Rush, you're familiar with the Boer yes. War. And it's interesting that the socialists in Britain were on Rhodes' side. They were not on the Boer side. And I'll explain. Here's here's from a book called The Fabians. It says, Apart from out-and-out imperialists, many liberals and a significant section of the Fabian society could not tolerate the Boers, whom they saw as reactionary religious fundamentalists, standing in the way of progress. Oh, you didn't treat the blacks (laughs) right. That was their propaganda. They They did this... The Boer War was to help the blacks. Well, anyway. The gold and the jewels were just uh, a side side issue. They were attracted to the ruthless autocratic Milner, who had a mystical belief in Britain's imperial destiny. Which is interesting. And in the was civilizing pure German. Yeah, and in the civilizing power of a superior British race. So you could see there Galton's mm-hmm. uh, eugenics, Darwin. An entire confluence of all of these idiotic ideas, and of course, even Carnegie admitted that it was Darwin that made him get rid of theology. You know that the- theology well, meant nothing to him well, after he, he uh, became a Darwinist. Well, Darwin killed God, yeah. and he also brought in racial superiority, which yes. nobody seems to want to talk about. Now, the only point, the reason why I bring this up, is because the Rhodes scholarships have become suspect. Now that we have a president who is a Rhodes Scholar, we've got congressmen and senators who are Rhodes Scholars. We have Rhodes Scholars like Strobe Talbot, uh, Ira Magazina, others 
you know, marbleized throughout well, the this uh, was his paternity. Yes, this yeah. is Clinton's paternity. But George Stephanopoulos is a I Rhodes think, scholar. I think yeah. I've said this to you before privately, and that is that I think the reason that Clinton went with the communists when he was in Oxford was that he thought they were going to win. He believed in the inevitable victory of socialism, which was the uh, shibboleth of that particular time. Once the, it became obvious that they did not win, he nevertheless continues to believe that the liberal uh, ideology of the United States, which believes in organizing everybody intellectually and socially and ethically, will win. So he still believes in the method, although he believes in the people who invented the method didn't succeed with it. But this is fundamentally a man without any true belief at all. He simply wants to be w swimming with the other fish. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it's uh, you have to ask yourself, how do we deal with this situation? Well, your, ex your, your explanations of the... Uh, campaign to destroy the ability to read is hitting at the very heart. Yes. You're really hitting at the very heart. If, you, if your message was to be broadcast to the whole country over international TV for a few weeks, you would change the country. Oh, yes, but that's why I'm prevented from doing so. Yeah. You know, I haven't gotten any calls from Oprah Winfrey or from uh, Phil Donahue. <laughs> Or any of the people who control the well, uh, outlets to the national if media. Could, if you could get to Limbaugh, it would help. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's not too keen on, this on is too secret societies yeah. and conspiracies. And generally, I don't like to discuss these things, but, you know, you have to. You, you can't ignore them. And, of course, there's a whole book on the subject. Quigley wrote The Anglo-American yes, Establishment, that's which right. is a documented no, uh, expose of this entire cabal I have everything it. they've been doing since this uh, was started back in 1902 after uh, yeah, Rose's death. I cribbed a lot of it for my South African book. Uh -huh. Well, there you are. <laughs> and of course that went underneath the waves very quickly. It was the only book I ever wrote that wasn't reviewed across the country. Yes. Now, here's a man, here's a, a here is a, uh, a historian, an eminent historian who writes a book about contemporary history in which he reveals the existence of this, he calls it a group. Yeah. Uh, of a cabal, of a conspiracy. And... Uh, he wrote this, uh, he revealed it in this huge tome, and it was published by Macmillan. Tragedy and Hope. Tragedy and Hope. And so he had access to its papers. He said, mm -hmm. I, he said the, only the only objection I have to what they're doing is that they want to remain secret. Mm -hmm. He said they ought to come clean and tell the American people what they're doing because what they're doing is very noble. They want world peace. And this was Mr. Clinton's professor. Yes. Strange that you should <laughs> bring that up. Well, I read Quigley, and I wouldn't contest any of his facts. But I think the heart of the matter is not what they intended to do, but what is the governing faith of our time? Yes. Is it a belief in God 
and his law or a belief in man and man's acts. I would say that uh, tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world would agree with uh, Quigley that these things are wonderful, that man has to do it all. So I don't think Quigley's book, even though it got such tremendous notice. Not really. Underground notice. Uh, yes, underground notice. Um, really made a nickel's worth of difference. Because in any event, it's an impossibility. Yes, but also it's a question of faith. And if people are going to believe in man and the state as their savior, they're going to be a sucker for any group that comes along. Well, this is the oldest series of ideas in the world. James I wanted to sit down with the Pope and settle the affairs of the world. Woodrow Wilson wanted to settle the affairs of the world alone by himself, not without even the Pope. And uh, we've got the UN, Mr. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to settle everything in the world, and these people. But the people that Sam is talking about have created as much damage. Maybe they'll create more damage here than the communists. Oh, yes. Because they, what they're doing is that they're going to create an illiterate America. Well, you're right. It's damages that they will create, just as Plato with his Republic exactly. created exactly. damage it's to the It's a great analogy. But it never was able to establish an order. Never. Oh, because no. it's impossible. No, but a disorder they can do. Yes. yes. Yes, the point is I don't believe that they will succeed. None of these utopian plans have ever succeeded yeah. uh, because they're based on false premises, on lies. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to succeed. But it's the damage that they do that is well, so Well, look bad. at the damage they've already done. Yeah, we've got, we've got done. children or young people, not no. just children. I'm very impressed by the homeschool parents because they themselves came out of public schools at a time when the public schools were no good. That's right. And the fact that they're smart enough to realize it and to pull their kids out of it and to struggle to educate themselves as well as their kids yes. is a uh, wonderful thing. I have seen homeschool mothers who started out barely able to write uh, a sentence who are now highly literal, literate as they have taught their children. Yes. The change is dramatic. Uh, I can think of one or two cases where I was frightened to think that the children were going to be taught by such mothers. And yet today the mother is uh, reading very superior materials. Well, if an adult decides to learn, then they can do it very yes. speedily. Well, our time is up now. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.